0: Please take out your worksheet number 18, the Antichrist's accomplice. Of course, an accomplice is someone who helps a bad guy, right? Drives the getaway car or something. But the accomplice is the friend or the helper, the assistant to the bad guy, to the criminal. And that's exactly what we're going to discover tonight. We've spent a good amount of time in Daniel looking very clearly at this sequence of world events From Babylon to Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome in multiple phases. Recall that, yes? Rome starts off as imperial Rome, all one solid iron empire. Then it moves, divides into ten. In Daniel 2, it's toes. In Daniel 7, it's horns. But fragments or divides into ten smaller kingdoms, but still divided Rome. Then you have this little horn, or the Antichrist power, come up. And for 1,260 years, from 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D., had its time of influence and is basically a reign of terror, what's commonly known now as the Dark Ages, where it was in control of that territory of Rome, persecuting the saints, thinking to change the times and laws, all the different things that it describes. But then after 1798, then you see this judgment scene in heaven, like you saw in Daniel chapter 7, where the court was seated and the books were open and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And we saw from Daniel chapter 8 that that would occur in the year 1844. That would begin. You put Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 together and you have this great longest time prophecy in the Bible that culminates there with the beginning of Christ's most holy place ministry work. But then you go back and you find that the little horn will have one last gasp of breath and one one last stand, if you will, during and after this time, because the little horn is going to continue to exist until it's destroyed by what event? The second coming of Jesus, right? Destroyed by the brightness of his coming, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says, and that's exactly what we saw in the chronology of Daniel chapter 7. But what I want to show tonight is it is not just Basically, we're going to continue, the Bible continues to give more and more detail as we get closer and closer to the end of time. Just like in Daniel chapter 2, you just saw the two phases of Rome, no spiritual power mentioned whatsoever, but then Daniel chapter 7 comes along and expands that understanding. You see, ah, there's four phases, it's going to be subdivided even more. What we're going to find now is that during this last phase of this little horn, that he doesn't work alone that the Antichrist has an accomplice. That's tonight's message, the Antichrist's accomplice. But before we dive into that study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who reveals your truth to us, reveals your word, and Lord, we want to understand it. So we ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these holy men of old to write down these passages we will read that same Holy Spirit would now write them in our minds, clearly, in language we can understand. And more than just our minds, Lord, inscribe it on the fleshy tables of our heart, so we may not only know about you, but we can learn to love you and put our trust in you and look forward to that soon coming. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 13. We have not done much with the book of Revelation yet, But now we're going to transition there. Revelation chapter 13, and now you might think, well, why are we going to dive right into the middle of the book? Revelation chapter 13. Well, because that's where we are, and I want to demonstrate that to you from the Bible itself. Revelation chapter 13, we're going to see exactly where we are in in the timeline I just drew out. You're going to see Revelation 13 picks up right where we were talking about. Okay? Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Now, this is, of course, not Daniel writing. Who's the author of the book of Revelation? John. Okay. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. It sounds very familiar, looking out over the sea. And I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Now, that sounds so very similar to what Daniel experienced. He was standing there looking out over the sea. And, but instead of seeing a beast, he saw four beasts, right? A sequence of beasts. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and this terrible dragon-like beast, right? But here he sees, then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up from the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns, ten crowns. And on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, let's break down what we see here. John, standing on the sand of the sea, looking looking out over the sea, he sees a beast rising up, and he describes it all the different attributes it has. Again, back in verse 1, it describes him having seven heads and ten horns. And on his head, ten crowns. And on his head's blasphemous name. Then verse 2, it gives even more detail. The beast was like a leopard. So apparently its body was like a leopard, but it wasn't just a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a what? Bear and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. So it's like it has the mouth or face of a, of a lion, the body of a leopard. It's got bare feet, b e a r feet. <laughs> you know that's going to be the next time I use that. It's going to be the, the beast with bare feet. <laughs> Write it down. It's going to come up. All right. <laughs> the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Okay. Now, compare that, if you will. Leave your finger, because Revelation 13 is going to be home base for us tonight, okay? But we're going to be going back and forth to Daniel and Revelation, because Daniel and Revelation do that. They overlap. They complement each other beautifully. And I believe it's not an accident. I believe the Lord put that in the Scripture so that we would see clearly his leading. Daniel chapter 7. Notice the similarities. I want you to see the similarities, and I want you to see the differences, and then see how they resolve beautifully. Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great what? Sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first one was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I watched till so its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said to us to it, "Devour much, arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. You're starting to see some similarities, right, and some differences. Let's go back to our worksheet now. First of all, John and Daniel are both watching beasts. This is your fill in the blank. Beasts rise from the what? Sea. By the way, this, you can also see a reference to this in Revelation chapter 17. There's a woman who's riding on the many waters, okay? Over many waters. See, this idea of this beast power, these beasts, plural or singular in John's case, are coming up out of the sea. But there's a big difference. John sees one beast comprised of various parts of Daniel's four beasts. If you notice, the parts represented in the book of Revelation of this one beast that John sees are just happen to be the exact same types of animals that we saw in Daniel's beasts. Just each one was one animal. In John's, it's one animal that is comprised of all of Daniel's animals' parts. Does that make sense? So, what I want you to notice here, again, look at the beasts of Daniel 7. We have a little chart here. The first thing he sees is a lion, and by the way, if it doesn't mention how many heads it has, you just assume it's a normal lion, right? You don't give to it extra heads, right? I don't do, if, I said, if my wife said, hey, I saw a dog today, I don't say, really, how many heads did it have? Right? She would look at me weird, and we'd have to have a long talk or something, you know? but you look at it, you talk about an animal and you assume it has all the normal parts unless otherwise stated right it's a simple principle but let's keep that in mind so the lion he sees and it doesn't mention it having any extra heads so you assume it have how many heads one okay now the same thing with the bear the bear rises up and it talks about it was lopsided so you know that about it but it doesn't mention anything about heads it has one head the leopard however it does mention something about its heads and how many does it have four It has four heads. Then there's this terrible beast that comes up. It also has one head, but it also has ten horns. Then you, of course, see the little horn that speaks pompous words. That's the sequence of events in Daniel chapter 7. Now, in in Revelation 13, compare that. John sees a single beast, but it's comprised of a leopard's body, with a bear's feet and a lion's mouth. Now, I want you to notice this, how it's laid out. John, I mean, Daniel sees lion. In fact, let's let's walk it out. Lion, bear, leopard, beast. Terrible beast, right? John, on the other hand, sees a beast with a leopard's body, with the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion. Do you notice this? Lion, bear, leopard, beast. Turn around and go the other way. Beast, leopard, bear, lion. It's re-recorded, so I can't fumble that much. right? Okay. But you get the idea that they're looking at the exact same sequence of events, just from two different perspectives. Daniel was living in the time of which of those four beasts? the Lion of Babylon, right? And so everything else is coming up. There wasn't another one yet. It's still future. It's another kingdom to come. And then after that would be another kingdom, and then there would be that fourth kingdom. So he's looking at it from the perspective of future history, if you can say such a thing, things yet to have occurred. And he's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. But what empire is John living in? Rome, He's living in the Roman Empire, and he doesn't see individual beasts to come. He sees a compilation of all the beasts that have been fulfilled here. And in fact, it even goes down to the, watch this. If you add up all the heads and horns from Daniel chapter 7, you have one for the lion, one for the bear, four for the leopard, and then the terrible beast, you all of a sudden have seven heads. And on that terrible beast, it had ten horns. Then you go back, of course, to Revelation 13. This singular beast just happens to have seven heads and ten horns. It makes it very clear that what Daniel saw unfolded in the future, John sees the identical thing just from the opposite perspective all compiled now as a fulfillment in the time in which he's living. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Good, good, good. If you said no, because that's, that's trouble for the rest of the night, I'm glad you're with me. Okay? So this now, what Daniel had, what we've gone through in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and Daniel 9, John comes along and sees it all in one pile. <clears throat> so he's not going to be reviewing what happened with Babylon, Medo-Persia and Greece and even Imperial Rome. He's going to be focusing on that end time section where Daniel had been focused on, right? And the more explanation was given there, this is where John picks the baton up and goes from there. Now, let's see if there's more evidence that the little horn power that culminates there at Daniel's, the end of Daniel's, is exactly what John is talking about. See if there's a seamless transition. Let's go back to the book of Revelation. chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Again, that's going to be home base for us tonight, so we want to keep a pen in it. Keep a finger there. Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to go down to verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and what? Blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now think back. Daniel chapter 7 sees a little horn that only has two human attributes. In fact, two attributes of any kind. It had two qualities, characteristics. What were those two things? Eyes and a, what was he doing with the mouth? Speaking pompous words, boastful words. And of course, it was given a time, time and half a time, or 1,260 years to rule. Now we go back to Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, that 42 months prophetic is identical to time, times, and half a time prophetic. They both in reality equal 1,260 years. It is patently clear from Scripture that the Antichrist power that Daniel was looking so far in the future to, John is saying, I'm living in the time of imperial Rome, and that's the next thing coming, right? This culmination beast that he sees is exactly where Daniel had seen this whole sequence leading up to. We're both focused now on the little horn power of what was Daniel 7 and 8 is now Revelation 13, okay? This is the same power, the Antichrist power that was looked looking back in Daniel, we saw, and now we see again in the book of Revelation. In fact, let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. Again, we're going to flip back and forth. Daniel chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 25, it describes the activities of this little horn power. He shall speak pompous words, and against now against whom? Most high. So, When the little horn was speaking great things, it's not just like, I'm the greatest on the earth, I'm the greatest that ever been, I'm the greatest king, I'm the greatest warrior. No, no, he's saying, I will be like God. By the way, who's the one who originally started this whole wanting to be like God business? Lucifer, right? So whenever we find that the dragon gave him his authority and power, this is the same character, the same mindset, the same thinking is infusing this earthly power as His heavenly counterpart. If you will, the Antichrist is simply Satan's representative on the earth. Where Jesus Christ is God the Father's representative on the earth. One demonstrates the character of Christ's enemy, one is Christ, the very Son of God. Okay? Again, Revelation uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. And he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, and what else shall he do? Shall persecute whom? The Saints of the Most High shall intend to change times and law, then the saints shall be given into His hand for a time, times and half a time. So let's go back and see this now in Revelation chapter 13. Again, Revelation chapter 13. Verse six, "Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme His name, His tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Same power that's being spoken about in both places. Now, let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. I know this is a little annoying. We're going to flip back and forth. But I want you to see the, how these two come together like a zipper. They come together as one. Daniel chapter 7 again go back to in chapter 7, verse 10. Because if you recall, the little horn has this Rome power, has several. Of course, it starts as just one singular empire, imperial Rome. Then it divides into ten kingdoms, divided Rome. And out of that comes this little horn that we've been talking about now, who will think to change the time's laws and persecute the saints of the Most High, on and on and on, for 1,260 years. And of course, something happens in heaven. This sanctuary is cleansed, right? The Day of Atonement, this Day of Judgment occurs. Daniel chapter 7. Notice what happens here. Verse 21 I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And we'll go back, in fact, verse 10. I'm sorry, not verse 10. After Jesus, well, I'm sorry, it is verse 10. The picture of the throne room judgment seen in heaven, Daniel 7, verse 10, a fiery stream came and issued forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, the court was seated and the books were opened. Okay, Then the very next thing he sees is verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of what? Pompous words which the little horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flames. So you notice a very clear sequence. Imperial Rome, divided Rome, little horn for 1,260 years. Then this heavenly judgment and then he's going to speak some more. There is a final phase during and after this judgment when we'll run all the way up till he's destroyed by the brightness of his coming, till his body is given to the flame so the beast of Rome is finally destroyed. Okay? Now, let's see if we see that. In Daniel, that's all we know, by the way, is that apparently he's going to speak his mouth again and blah, 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 blah. But what we find in Revelation is not only repeating of the same thing, now an enlarging of this particular section. That during this time, after 1798, after his time of, time, times, and half a time, his time of persecution, that the revived Antichrist power has an accomplice. Someone's going to help him out. It's not mentioned in the book of Daniel, but it's made explicitly clear in the book of Revelation. Let's go back to Revelation 13, our home base for the night. It says here, Revelation chapter 13. Again, we'll just start with verse 1 to give it the context. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horn ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Again, we're speaking making reference to the Antichrist power that would think you back to Daniel and bring you up to speed. Now, verse 2... The beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a drag, uh, lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And then verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been what? Mortally wounded. So apparently it got strong, got strong, and strong, got big, but at a time when it was cut off, it received a mortal wound. And what kind of wound is a mortal wound? One that'll kill you. It'll, it's to death, right? A deadly wound. One of its, verse 3, and I saw one of its heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was what? Healed. Now, there aren't a lot of characters in the Bible who receive a deadly wound, a wound that kills you, and then it's healed. We'll come back to that in a minute, but there's an interesting parallel And boy, did the world like that. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with the beast? So we see in Revelation chapter 13 a repeating. We're going to go to the next side of our worksheet now. A repeating of what we saw in Daniel chapter 7. But just as we saw in Daniel, just as we saw 2, 7, 8, and 9, you see the same basic framework, but you expand, you enlarge, and you give more detail on the more pertinent end-time events. Okay? You don't ever get more detail about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. It really doesn't help. But as you get into Rome, it starts getting more and more extensive in its interpretation, and closer and closer you get to the end towards this time of judgment and the return of Jesus. It gets more and more explicit until Revelation comes along, takes the baton, and says, I got it from here. Picks up in the same place it left off. And everything in Revelation chapter 13, at least the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 13, speaks of the same thing that Daniel had seen, but it's focusing on this time of its after its mortal wound has been healed. Daniel only makes a slight reference to it, saying, After the judgment, I looked and there were still pompous words coming out of his mouth. After its time was up, it was speaking again. Revelation takes that inference, that little reference, and expands on it. And thus we find the Antichrist accomplice starting in verse 11. It says here, Then I saw, what's it say next? Another beast. Now a beast, so far consistently in both the books of Daniel and Revelation, always refers to an earthly beast power, a nation, or a kingdom, some sort of empire, right? And now he sees another one. Now, this one was not mentioned in Daniel. The last thing he sees is the little horn power, but now we find another beast. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the where? But I thought all the beasts came up out of the sea. Where does this one come from? The earth. Okay. So it's a little bit different. Comes from a different place. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now this is a very interesting passage, friends. Very interesting passage. Now, Let's break down what we've just read, in fact. Goes on to say, he says, it rises from the earth and not the sea. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, everything that we've seen so far in both Daniel and Revelation, all this sequence of powers from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the divided room, all of it's coming out of the same source, the sea. Revelation picks right back up on that Revelation 13. I was standing on the sand of the shore I looked out on the sea and up comes this beast. So it's the beast from the sea is the first thing you see, which is this Antichrist power. But then another beast comes up and is not from the sea. It's a beast from the earth. It's a beast from the earth. Well, what difference does it make? Well, the Bible, handily enough, tells us what a sea represents. So let's go over to Revelation chapter 17, just four chapters to the right. Revelation chapter 17. And again, you see a reference to this Antichrist power. Now in Revelation chapter 17, it's this impure woman, this harlot, as the scripture calls it, this Babylon. But notice the description here in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many what? Waters. Okay, it's the same entity again, sitting on these many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman, and of course in Bible prophecy, a woman always represents the church, thank you, sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Have you ever seen this beast that comes out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns? yes. It's this Antichrist power once again, right? Going repeating. Same, the same method of instruction you see in Daniel where you take one idea and then you repeat it and give more detail, repeat and give more detail. The same method happens in the book of Revelation. Same thing. Again, Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. By the way, what does that tell us about her daughters? They are harlots as well, right? And of the abominations of the earth. Fascinating thing. We're going to have a whole message about this that focuses more, but if you notice here, this woman is apparently the mother of many children who are also harlots, and she's committed fornication with the kings of the earth. So you have a woman who is apparently unfaithful, has had children, and they come off kind of like a chip off the old block, and they're harlots as well, right, from the fornications. Interesting. You're going to see another woman in Revelation who's also with child, but of a whole different character. But we'll get to that later on, okay? Now, verse 6 again. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the martyrs of Jesus. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, why do I bring this here? Well, A, it's another reference to the same power, but also skip down to verse 15. It includes a helpful little interpretive passage. It tells us what the waters, the sea, means. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Okay. Apparently the waters are multitudes, nations, peoples, and tongues. However, the earth is not, (laughs) this is the most basic earth science class ever, earth is not water. So one comes up out of the water, over and over, out of the water, out of the water, out of the water. But one other thing, at the very end time, there's another one that comes up from the earth. Now, interestingly enough, earth is referenced also. Revelation chapter 12, go back there. Revelation chapter 12. We see this other woman who has a child, but this is the pure woman. Not an unfaithful harlot woman, but this one apparently is, uh, has, is bearing the very child of God. In a faithful relationship to bring forth this child, and it says, verse 5, she bore a male child, and that's capital C in your Bible, most likely, as Jesus Christ, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared for by God, that she should flee there uh, she, that they should feed her there for, guess how long? 1,260 days, or 1,260 years. Okay, Go to uh, verses 13 now and on. It repeats the same history. Now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he, pursued, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. This is the pure woman, the pure church, who gave birth to Jesus Christ. But the woman was given two great wings of an eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Same prophecy over again. From the presence of the serpent. Now watch verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. So he spews waters, nations, languages, tongues, people, blah, a big earth. But the woman has a place of escape in a whole different place called the earth, and the earth helps the woman sometime during this time, times and half a time, this 12,1260 years. Again, verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood, but the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Let me ask you something. From that time between 538 AD and 1798 AD, the church was persecuted by this antichrist power. But was there a place of escape that they fled to Yes, it was not inhabited, it was not from the old world, it was not from all this people's, nations, tribes, language, and tongues. Yes, there was a land, an earth, a wilderness place, a relatively desolate place compared to the chaos that was going on over at the other place, where during that time, a land of refuge was set up during that 1,260 years. Interesting. And now we go back to Revelation chapter 13, And apparently, this beast comes out of this earth. Verse 11 again, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. So there's a beast, a nation, an empire, a kingdom that comes out of this earth, the earth to which these persecuted folks fled during the Dark Ages to come away. And apparently, A beast rises from this place. A nation, a great kingdom. Verse 11 again. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and it tells us his characteristics. He had two horns like a what? Lamb. Now let's go back to your worksheet. Two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. In Revelation, a dragon always represents whom? Satan, the devil. Always. The power behind the dragon power is always Satan. You can see this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. We saw that earlier whenever the dragon was cast out, and it tells us that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Very clear. You see the same thing again in Revelation chapter 20. We saw that the other night. When Jesus returns, the only thing that is left is the dragon, who uh, Revelation 20 calls, who is the devil and Satan, and it bounds him for a thousand years with a great chain. Repeatedly, it's clear that the dragon is represents Satan, but the word lamb is also used frequently in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's used 28 times in the book of Revelation. 28 times you find lamb in the book of Revelation, over and over and over. And each and every one of those times, it refers to not Satan or the devil, but refers to whom? Jesus Christ like the lamb who was slain, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the lamb. Yet here is this beast, this empire, kingdom, nation, that comes up out of this place of safety that the church fled during the time of persecution in divided Europe, and out of this earth comes this great nation, and it has inside of it these two Competing, First of all, it has two horns, which horns always represent two kingdoms of a greater kingdom, right? Two kingdoms. And those kingdoms are like what? A lamb. Please, 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 disabuse your mind if you've ever thought of the lamb-like beast. No, no, no. The beast is not like a lamb. The two horns are like a lamb, but it speaks... From its body, it speaks like a dragon. What an interesting thing. Here in Revelation chapter 13, we see this in verse 11, this beast that comes up from the earth. And all those times that lamb is referenced, it's always talking about Jesus Christ. And all those times the dragon is represented, it talks about Satan. And in one nation, one power, you have qualities or attributes that are lamb-like, but you have a voice that speaks like, dragon. Some Christ-likeness in these two horns, but when it speaks, when it acts, when it does, it does like the devil. Mm. Now, this is an interesting beast. Now, of course, again, back to our worksheet. In prophecy, horns represent a single power's various kingdoms. You saw that in Daniel chapter 7. It has 10 horns. Daniel chapter 8, uh, we saw it again with these horns. In fact, we've seen one in Daniel chapter 8. It specifically mentions, if you recall, the ram that was charging from the east to the north and the south and the west, and it had two horns on it, and one was greater than the other, and that kind of thing. But it was one beast with two horns. You see the same imagery used now in Revelation, where you have this beast from the earth that has two horns, but those two horns are like a lamb. Now, you would think, How is it possible that this one, because I'm guessing you're already putting the pieces together. Can I just assume some wisdom in this room? I'll take your silence and be like, yes, yes, good. That there's only one power on the planet that can even come close to representing what we've seen here in Revelation chapter 13. That during the time of papal persecution in divided Rome, which was divided Europe of that time, that there was a place of safety and harbor in the wilderness and a whole other place, part of the planet, an earthly place that helps the woman and gives her refuge and feeds her in this wilderness during the 1,260 years, and out of that place rises up a great nation. What nation are we talking about, friends? The United States of America. We're in it right now. No doubt about it. Now, how is it possible, however... That This great nation can have two kingdoms. Say, wait a minute. How is it possible? Well, let's figure this out from the Bible. Let's figure it out from the Bible. First of all, Christ recognized two concurrent yet separate kingdoms. Always. Always two kingdoms. Mark chapter 12. Let's go back to the scripture there. Mark chapter 12. You're going to go to page uh, 982 in your pew Bible. Mark chapter 12, page 982. We're going to start with verse 13. Then they sent him to some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Jesus is always trying to be put in a corner and trapped and stuck and make him fall all over himself. Of course, he answers brilliantly every time. Verse 14, when they had come, they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true, that we know that you are true, and you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Now, when he say they don't care about anyone, that means doesn't show favoritism or partiality. You don't play favorites. You're going to tell us the truth no matter what it is. Be careful when someone comes up to you and says, Oh, you're doing so great. Everything is wonderful, 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 because they're about to lay the hammer down. Right? So good to see you, buddy. Hey, can I borrow your... Right, there it is. Right? Hey, good to hear. Can, can I have $20? Stop right? They come to Jesus the same way. We know that you're true, and you don't, you, you're not going to show favor to anyone. You're going to, you're a straight shooter, aren't you, Jesus? You can almost imagine Jesus. What do you want? Now, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Simple question. Should we pay tax to Caesar? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. And I love how Jesus always makes them answer their own question. Brilliant. Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? You have eyes, right? Just look at it. Tell me who this is. And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Jesus makes it very clear. There are Caesar things. There are civil governmental things. One of them is taxes. Which, by the way, Jesus himself, and then you go to Romans chapter 13, friends, pay your taxes. <laughs> the Bible is explicitly clear on this. You, know, you can vote to get different tax structures. You can do whatever you want. But Jesus says, look, it's Caesar's money. He can control it. He asked for this much back. You give it to him, period. And the same way with God, there are things that he asked for and you give those to him. But he recognizes there are two kings, Caesar and God. Thus two kingdoms, the civil authority and the religious authority. Does this make sense? Concurrent, existing at the same time, independent of one another, but side by side. And they were trying to trap him. Which one should we be? Should we be for Caesar or for God? And he's like, no, 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 you don't have to choose. They both exist in the same place at the same time. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Very simple. Let's go to Romans 13. I made reference to it. Go to the right, Romans chapter 13. Starting with verse 1, the Apostle Paul, this is going to be page 10, 1095, 1095, Romans chapter 13. And notice what the Apostle Paul speaks about. Our duty as Christians to the civil authorities. He does not say, now you're in Christ, so disregard every other law. No, no, no. He understands there's a law of the Lord, and there's a law of the land. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and the authority exists, are appointed by God. God allowed, now, originally, let's go back. In the Garden of Eden, did God want there to be a whole separate form of government, and then there's God's government? No. His ideal form of government is called a theocracy, where God is the head of the church and the state, right? But friends, we don't live in a theocracy now, so thus we have frail, mortal, son of man type people around here, and they've got their own civil government, because you have believers and non-believers, you've got this and that, and the Lord is not going to force his will on you. He's like, okay, so he'll allow the establishment of earthly governments, but at the same time, you have an obligation to be a citizen of heaven. Every Christian has dual citizenship. You're a citizen of the nation of this earth and the nation of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Paul articulates then as people who have this citizenship. Paul is the one who said, for your citizenship is in heaven. But then he tells this in Romans chapter 13, how to live here on earth. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Now, of course, there are people who abuse their power, and there are bad forms of government, sure, but the Lord allows this society to exist and run itself as it sees fit. And of course, the ideal is that they would do good things. They would be in your best interest. They wouldn't be hunting you down. They'd be protecting you and this kind of thing. And he says, they're out to help you. That's the point of them, to be in existence. For they are rulers, verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? I love his answer. Do what is what? Good. You want to be not afraid of the police? Keep the law. Now, we'll just keep going. Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, I don't know if often the police officer pulls you over just to reward you for doing well, right? I don't know how often they praise you, but you're not going to get in trouble for it. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that you feel different when you pass a police officer, depending on what speed you're going? I, I, won't, I won't infer that upon you. I'll just give you my own personal testimony. Okay? That when you fly by a cop and you notice that your speedometer is somewhere in the realm of, let's just say, past the speed limit, that all of a sudden you have different physical reactions. You know, you hands get sweaty, you start twitching, looking around and stuff, all of a sudden you... But if you're going, say, five, 10 miles an hour under the speed limit, hello there, Mr., good to see you. How you doing today, sir? Look good in that suit. Go after somebody else. You're fine, right? Same offer, but the difference is whether you're abiding the law or not, right? Notice, Paul Paul picks up on this. Of course, they weren't speeding, perhaps. I don't know if they had chariot speed limits in that day, but it says here, verse 4, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be what? Be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. You know, they've got a sword and they're going to use it. Civil authorities speak in laws and enact them, and they follow through with them. They execute those laws, and the Lord says, hey, this is, the, this is what is on the earth. You, you have an obligation as far as humanly possible until it contradicts the law of God, the law of the Lord, you should be faithful to the law of the land. Very clear. goes on. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Now, as good citizens, we can vote about what we want the tax money to be spent on and who we want in power, and that's all part of being good citizenry. But when the government speaks, unless it, unless it violates the law of God, be subject. Very simple. Render, therefore, to all their due. And notice, it's almost as though he picked up what Jesus was saying. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Very clear. Philippians chapter 3, of course, though, the same Paul now, keep going to the right, Philippians chapter 2, same Paul says, I mean chapter 3, I'm sorry, in verse 20, that's going to be page 1131 in your pew Bible, says of Christians, for our citizenship, where? Is in heaven. From which we also await from the Savior, uh, wait eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So apparently, according to Paul's mind, we are subject to the earthly authorities here, but our citizenship is in heaven. Very clear. We have an obligation to follow the law of the Lord as Christians, and also the law of the land as good citizens. Okay, two kingdoms, independent, but operating concurrently, At the same time, the same place. By the way, by the way, let's go to John chapter 18. Let me show you something fascinating. The only way that the Jewish leaders had to execute Jesus was to bring together the power of the church, the influence of the church, with the power of the state. In fact, fascinating study. You go through the last events, the last trial of Christ's life, right? Those hours, those day and a half or so leading up to his execution, it were the, the Roman powers were speaking to the religious powers, saying, "What law has he broken?" And they'll say, "Oh, he said he was going to destroy the temple. Well, that's your that's your deal. <laughs> he 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 blasphemed God. Their question is, did he pay his taxes? Right." Tell me a Roman law that he broke, and we'll talk about the death sentence. But you're dealing in spiritual things, and this is an earthly court. And repeatedly, the earthly governors, the officials, the the government officials who, who are not spiritual, these Romans, would turn back to the Jewish leaders and say, that's your law, not ours. In our eyes, he's done nothing to deserve the deathbed. In fact, they tried to get him out. They said, here, take another one. We don't want to execute him. But if you'll notice what happened, if you go back and study it closely, the Jewish leader said, yes, but if you don't execute what we want, we'll let it be known that you are no friend of Caesar's. And we will be a political problem for you. And to avoid a political problem... The civil power caved to the will of the religious power. And the church and state came together to execute Jesus. The church had no army, had no officials, could do nothing. It was bound not to execute things. But it had to employ the mighty arm of the state to kill Jesus. John chapter 18, let me show you this. Starting with verse 28. And notice that Jesus, even in this moment, recognizes the two kingdoms that should coexist in a peaceful harmony. Verse 28 of John chapter 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. The things that they thought were a big deal. They didn't want to follow Jesus to his Gentile court because it might defile them and they couldn't celebrate the Passover. And the Passover was pointing to Jesus. Just a life lesson, by the way. Sin dulls your sense of irony. Okay? The idea of you try to take out the speck in your neighbor's eye but you don't see the log in your own eye, the plank in your own eye. You'll see Christians do it all the time. Well, hopefully not all the time, but you've definitely seen examples of it. They'll go behind someone's back and talk about what a gossip they are. And you don't even realize, I'm doing the same thing, right? Here, these guys are leading the Passover lamb himself to his execution, and they want to stay clean so they can keep the Passover. Right? And you think, how can they be like that? Because of sin. Sin isn't logical. It doesn't make sense. It makes you crazy. Friends, God makes sense. Sin is nuts. Anyway, that's a whole nother sermon. Sin is nuts, but we'll keep going. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, would we have not delivered him up to you? <laughs> I love that. It's like, just trust us. He's real, real bad. Just go ahead and kill him. Then, watch verse 31 carefully. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to what? Your law. You have your own little court, your religious court, but don't bring it to the civil court. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. As if they say, trust me, if we could, we would. We don't have that power. Only you have the power to do that, and we need to appeal to you to enforce your power on our behalf church and state coming together. Verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he had spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? The calmness that Jesus has That is an interesting question. Are you coming up with that on your own? Or did someone egg you to say that? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation. Notice two different nations. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Was Jesus saying that he was a king? Yes. But of this world? No. But of the spiritual kingdom, the king of the Jews, right? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, if I were just another king like, you know, Caesar, my servants would do what? Fight trust me what you're doing to me now would be cause for war right but that's not how my kingdom operates my servants would fight so that i should not be delivered to the jews but now my kingdom is not from here pilate therefore said to him are you a king then jesus answered you say rightly that i am a king for this cause i was born and for this cause, I, was, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears of the truth hears my voice. And then he goes on. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And you notice what Jesus is doing here? He's having a little evangelistic campaign right there, a little personal ministry time. He's trying to win even Pilate. And Pilate's on the hook. He's like, he can tell. This guy is brilliant. He must be from... What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find what? No fault in him at all. Roman law, he has done nothing wrong. In fact, I like him way better than I like you. Let's just be honest. But, verse 39, you have a custom that I should release someone to you at Passover do you therefore want me to read to you the king of the Jews? Notice like, your own king is standing here, folks. He's your king. Do you want him back? And then they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Clearly, throughout Jesus' ministry, he recognized the ideal, and the New Testament authors attest to it, that on the earth there should be a civil power, the laws of the land, and a spiritual power, the law of the Lord. This beast from the earth will have those two kingdoms, both of them lamb-like, both of them Christ-like, both of them good. They serve their purpose. And when they're doing their job, which, by the way, this is fascinating. This, this great nation this superpower in the world has a, has a government with no king and a church with no pope. Complete freedom of conscience in both areas. And that is Christ-like because he never coerces, he never pushes, he never regulates like that. He allows freedom of choice. And these two kingdoms that would operate simultaneously on the earth are Christ like. But somehow, this same beast that built on these beautiful two kingdoms, as these two kingdoms operate, will still speak like a dragon. It will enact laws, it will execute ideas that come from the very mind of Satan himself. By the way, let's go to this counterfeit Christ area here. We're going to wind down here, but I want to show you something fascinating. I, I don't have time to go through all of the text individually. I put them there so that you can later on look them up as you go along. But Satan's highest aim, as we've already studied, is to be like whom? The most high, to be like God. And to worship accordingly. We Saw that in Isaiah 14. As God is represented on earth by Jesus Christ, Satan's representative on earth is the Antichrist. Now, did you know that Satan, through his Antichrist power, the Antichrist counterfeits Jesus Christ to a T. Watch this now. If, again, if you don't show up and say like, "Hi, I work for Satan," you want, it's not going to win, right? It has to be Christ like, has to something like Jesus. Watch this now. For instance, Jesus Christ's ministry of redemption, his mission here on Earth, it began when he came up out of where, the water. Direct quote, Mark chapter 1. It lasted for how long? How long was Jesus' earthly ministry? Three and a half years. You could divide it into 42 months or time, times, and a half a time, 1,260 days. That was Jesus' ministry. By the way, you can tell because in John chapter 2, it talks about the first Passover, then the second Passover, and in John chapter 19, you have the third Passover where Jesus is the Passover lamb. Time, times, and half a time. By the way, at that Passover, what happened to Jesus? He received a deadly wound. He was killed. But shortly thereafter, what happened to Jesus? That deadly wound was healed. Jesus, after his wound is healed, employs another power to work on his behalf on the earth, does he not? The Holy Spirit, right? He says, if I go away, it's expedient that I go, that I may send the Helper to you. The the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, will be poured out, right? So Jesus leaves, and he sends out the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, and they give a marvelous thing. They tell people that, and by the way, they're not saying, worship the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit drives them to worship Jesus, to represent Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is not to receive worship, but it's to facilitate the worship of Jesus, right? Right? And by the way, he's promised that after he's crucified and resurrected, he will draw all peoples to himself. Of course, after his deadly wound is healed. Now, Jesus Christ has that ministry. Now, watch the parallels in the Antichrist. It's fascinating. His ministry of, uh, I put ministry in quotes, right? His work, his anti-ministry, if you will, of deception. Of course, as Jesus is of redemption, his is of deception. But it begins when he, according to Revelation 13, 1, comes up out of the water. It lasts for three and a half, not literal years, but prophetic years. Receives a deadly wound at the end of that time, times, and half a time. 1,260 years, 1798. Everybody thought he was done. The papacy was ended. But Revelation 13, 3 makes reference to the deadly wound being healed. And just like Jesus Christ, after his deadly wound was healed, another power represents him on the earth. This time it's not the Holy Spirit, but what the Bible would later refer to as the false prophet, this beast from the earth, employs the power of a nation with lamb-like qualities or horns to work on his behalf to coerce the world, and it promises to draw all peoples to himself after his deadly wound was healed. The same thing. Go back to Revelation chapter 13. As we close, what will this beast from the earth, who starts off with these lamb-like horns, these two kingdoms, concurrently governing in their given spheres, one in the religious world, one in the civil world, Watch what happens in Revelation chapter 13. We'll start with verse 11 again as we summarize what this nation, this great nation, will, according to prophecy, do on behalf of the beast. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to do what? To worship the first beast, which is the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, whose deadly wound was healed. The purpose of this beast from the earth rising up is now to give aid and help facilitate the worship of that first beast from the sea. And how does he do it? Verse 13, he performs great signs So that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Verse 14 tells us a clue as to whether there's a good power or bad power. And he, what's that word? Deceives. Who's the great deceiver all throughout Bible prophecy? Satan himself, right? That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And of course, he gives his authority and power to the beast from the sea, the Antichrist. And after his deadly wound, the Antichrist has another power work for him to draw people back to him, and it works by the same methodology. Deception. Deception. Jesus wants redemption. Satan wants deception. Verse 14 again. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. Now we're going to come back, by the way, in a whole other lesson coming up very soon. And we're going to talk about the mark of the beast, but I want you to see who the crafter, the craftsman of this mark of the beast is. This image to the beast goes on. He was granted, I'm sorry, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Notice this beast from the earth is not having people worship it. It is trying to get people to worship the beast from the sea. And by worshiping the beast from the sea, you're really worshiping the one who gave it authority, which is the dragon. Dragon, beast from the sea, beast from the earth. It's a chain, a hierarchy. By the way, if you notice here, there's three powers. If you would, a father and a son and a a counterfeit Holy Spirit. It's a counterfeit trinity that Satan has established. Fascinating. Go on. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. That the image of the beast, so this thing, this, this whole purpose, this, you know, this beast from the earth makes this image, and the image is supposed to be a, not just an image, but it's an homage to the first beast, right? And he gives power to this image. It's not just an empty symbol. It can act. It can enforce its decrees. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? Notice he starts with deception, and if he doesn't, doesn't get you by deception, he's going to go to all-out oppression, force, coercion. You notice this, that Satan doesn't mind if you worship him under false pretenses. Remember, he comes to Jesus. Look, we all know it's fake. Just bow down and do it anyway. Jesus is very different. He wants the whole world drawn to him, but he will not take one person forced to him. The difference is in character. Watch this now. Verse 16. He causes all. Of course, before we get to the death penalty, he starts ratcheting it up and tightening the noose a little bit. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, again, we're going to have an entire message on the mark of the beast. It's coming up, but I want you to notice this as we conclude here, what we've learned about the Antichrist's accomplice. The Antichrist's accomplice. First of all, it rises geographically from a relatively uninhabited land, a different location than the nations of Europe, out of which the you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and that whole area over there. From the old world, this one is from the new world, if you will. Notice now, it rises to prominence chronologically during the time the Antichrist received its deadly wound, which was in 1798. Of course, right about that time, the United States of America was coming into existence as a nation. Right? It would be ruled concurrently by two separate Christ-like kingdoms, a church without a pope and a state without a king. It would be a superpower with global influence so that it could cause the whole world to do whatever it sets up to do. And eventually it will cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship a revived Roman Catholic papacy. Friends, I want you to see this directly from God's word. First of all, let me ask you, did it make sense tonight? Was it clear? Praise the Lord. I want you to see that the Bible is trustworthy, that the books of Daniel and Revelation are relevant to the time in which we're living. We are living in this time. It's not like we have to scan the future. It's like, I wonder when that will happen. Friends, we're in it. This is the time in which we're living. The hour of his judgment has come, and the final events, as Bible prophecy has told them, has told them to us are beginning to unfold in front of our eyes. Now, I want to be clear. I praise the Lord for those two Christ-like kingdoms that operate. I praise the Lord for freedom to worship and assemble as our conscience dictates. That's a godly principle. The same thing is true, I praise the Lord, that we don't have a military dictatorship. We don't have some of the things that other places have. This is what we have. But we also, while we praise the Lord for those two concurrent Christ-like kingdoms, we also must be aware that this same beast is going to speak like the dragon. If we have any trust in God's word, it is crystal clear the sequence of events that is beginning to unfold. Now, I say that not to say scary and terrifying, but it's true. But the good thing is, we have a Jesus who says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Friends, we should not look at this as a revelation of beasts and a bunch of scary things. It's just like Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 says. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And whenever his people are on trial, he's right there with them. And I want you to understand that Jesus is right here with you. And we're going to go through this thing not by our own strength or not by our own creativity. You know, the preparation for the end time events is not to dig a hole in the ground and get canned goods. The preparation is to get a relationship with Jesus Christ that is fireproof, that is indestructible, that no matter what happens, that faith remains. Can you say amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much tonight for your word being so crystal clear Help us to understand it and help us to see it unfolding not just on the pages of Scripture but also on the pages of the headlines around us. We see it in our world that all the things that prophecy then and history now has shown us is leading up to exactly where we are. And Lord, we thank you for the freedoms of this great country. We praise the Lord that we can assemble here free of harassment. We can speak the things of God with no persecution. And Lord, we ask that you extend those times so the message of God may get out. But we know that there's a time coming that I believe is stealing upon us rapidly. When the Bible prophecies, especially of Revelation 13 and onward, are going to be fulfilled, I believe, in our lifetime. So Lord, I would ask that you would prepare us for those days, but not militarily, but spiritually, Lord. Help us to be connected to Jesus, so that come what may, though the heavens fall, there will be those faithful few. And Lord, we want to be among them. So keep us faithful for you, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons,